Well, good morning. Welcome to Northwest Community Church. Thankful for all of you here this morning and really excited about this morning. And it's my privilege because it's family and also because of just the privilege of introducing such a, an amazing man of God to you guys. So our speaker this morning is Caleb. He's my brother-in-law. He's married to my older sister. And it's just been a, an extreme privilege to get to know him over the last uh, 10, 11, 11 years. However long it's been, it's been, a, it's been a joy. And I was privileged a couple years ago also. I use privilege a lot, but it really is a privilege. Uh, a couple years ago to actually go to, to Lebanon where they're, um, where they're serving and doing their work. And I got to see it firsthand. And it's just a really, really cool thing to see uh, their heart, first of all, for, uh, for the things of God and for the gospel going forth, but also just for the people that God has entrusted into their, into their ministry. And so uh, just super, super thankful. And even in like regular everyday conversation, it can be challenging talking to Caleb because he's just so smart and he just thinks about the world in a, in a unique way. And so uh, he's going to be coming this morning. You can come on out, man. He's going to be coming and sharing um, out of God's word this morning, and uh, I know it's going to be a blessing to you guys. I heard a little bit just kind of where he's going this week. Uh, I'm excited to sit and just hear what he has to bring. Uh, so let's give a Northwest welcome to Caleb as he brings God's word this morning. Okay. <laughs> well, good morning. It's my privilege to use an Adam word uh, to be here with you this morning uh, to bring you greetings from the saints in Lebanon. And uh, it's really been a privilege for us and a great time for us to be able to be back here in the U.S. and sharing about what we're up to. And uh, so, uh, greetings. What I wanted to talk with you about uh, this morning is, starts with a question. How many of you have ever visited a place where uh, you had to eat something you didn't realize was food? <laughs> okay, I see a few hands. Um, I Maybe this is a bit of a meme to start off with, a stereotype about, about missionaries, uh, that a part of the job description is they like to eat strange food. Nevertheless, uh, I do like to travel. I love adventure, uh, and particularly about discovering new foods. Um, and because of that, I've eaten all kinds of strange things. Uh, lamb brains, uh, grilled crickets, um, pig's blood curds. I don't know if you know what pig's blood curds are. Uh, it's a delicacy uh, that you find in southern China, uh, as well as Hong Kong, Taiwan. The funny thing is that I've tried all of these foods in Dallas, Texas. Um, you don't have to travel far to experience those. When I was in seminary in Dallas, uh, during my time there, the uh, uh, there's a number of universities that are in Dallas, and I was involved in a ministry where you could go and sign up to meet international students who had come to the U.S. to study at these universities. And so I was paired with a, a student, and then he invited me with some of his friends from the southern province of Guangdong, China. Uh, the, it's a province there in China, and as we got to know each other, he invited me and this group, we all went out to eat food from his province at a, a restaurant that's there in Dallas. And so we had a hot pot and you gather all, these, all of these different delicacies and interesting food from, uh, well, all parts of animals. And uh, they're just there on the table and you cook them up and eat them. And I have to admit that when I tasted pig's blood curds at the table that night, it isn't my favorite. Um, I nearly gagged. Uh, it tastes, well, different than the food that I normally eat. 
It tastes kind of like squishy pennies, if you want to know. Um, so it's not my favorite, uh, but thankfully, uh, this is not something we're ever served in Lebanon. In Lebanon, we have some incredible food. I love eating Lebanese food. Um, and for the most part, they're foods that I think are pretty normal or uh, delightful, delectable to eat. Uh, there's a number of Mediterranean restaurants, I think, here in town even. If you've tasted those, it's in the neighborhood of what we eat. Um, and I love it. There's one particular dish, though, that I like to eat very much that maybe people think is a little strange. It's sheep intestines. There's a, a version of it that's made in Lebanon that it just is really good. And maybe it's not your favorite, um, and that's okay, because having preferences is normal. And that's sort of the point that I wanted to tell with all of these funny food stories. But here's, there's a problem um, with our food preferences. The problem is uh, when food disgust, or food preferences, and particularly disgust around certain foods, turns into social disgust. We all have a tendency to fall into social disgust. And make no mistake, it's absolutely destructive for the mission of God in the world. Social disgust happens something like this. It starts with, it's so disgusting that Caleb likes to eat sheep intestines. When that turns into that sheep intestine eater, Caleb, is so disgusting. You see the shift? Just substitute in your favorites as best and your least favorites as worst. Uh, social disgust is a form of favoritism. It happens between communities uh, marked by differences when they stop talking to each other. These differences that begin as minor, maybe differences around food preferences or sports teams, you know, North Carolina versus state. I don't, maybe that's a major difference, but major differences uh, also develop. And major differences look more like political ideology, conservative versus progressive, religious conviction, Christians versus Muslims. When those social differences become a point of social disgust and favoritism, that's a problem that interrupts and can inhibit the mission of God in this world. That social disgust, whatever form it takes, literally what I'm saying is that it inhibits the good, the good news of Jesus. It obstructs the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning what I want to do is take a look together at a passage uh, from the Word of God that confronts this favoritism, this, these forms of social disgust that hinder the gospel. So uh, what we're going to look at is to see how God, God's Word invites us to discover new and deeper dimensions of God's love for humanity, for all people, including them, whoever that may be for you. This message comes to us in the story of Peter and Cornelius. Uh, so the text we're going to be looking at, if you have your holy Bibles or your holy telephones with a Bible app, you can open either. That would be great. Um, we're going to be looking at a passage from Acts. Uh, it comes, well, it comes in Acts chapter 10, the main story. But then uh, it, more broadly, what we're going to look at is this whole section about the story of Peter. It comes, it starts in chapter 9, really, and then continues on into chapter 11. The main story of Peter and Cornelius is there in chapter 10. But I want to look at what is a literary unit, this whole entire story, and we'll walk through the story together. There's about 
eight scenes that you could divide up, and there's a progression, and it follows a story arc. So it's an, it could make, I don't know, a major motion picture someday in Hollywood. There's a story arc here with tension that builds and then is released at the end around an issue, and we'll see that together today. So if you've opened there, we'll look at this. This story, just to locate us, uh, lands right in the center of the story of the expansion of the good news of Jesus in the book of Acts. So if you remember in Acts 1, we have this picture of, uh, on Jesus' mouth even, the thesis that uh, the, the gospel will progress from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and into the outermost parts of the world, the uttermost corners of the earth. And this story lands us right here in Judea and Samaria. It's the progression of the good news outward and outside of Jerusalem, outside of those contexts. And the big idea that Luke is making in this whole story, in this big story, is about the universality of the good news of Jesus. And so that's the big idea that we're following along here. This section uh, expands our understanding of this. It focuses on the story of Peter. And so this is where this literary unit is focused. It's on Peter, and at the center of that is Peter and Cornelius. So this is the story that we're following. Uh, we'll walk through this passage, and then as we walk along, there's three points that we'll stop and just take a bit of a break as we follow the story and think about what the eternal truth is that is at work here and how we apply that. What does that mean for us in our lives? So join with me. In Acts 9, around verse 32, uh, we get a transition. There's a transition word even that Luke uses here that begins to, to introduce this new story. So the overall story begins with this word, as. As Peter traveled about the country, there's a vagueness about this word that disconnects it from what's previously happened. Luke is telling a new story. It's disconnected from Stephen's martyrdom, the Greeks and the Hellenists, uh, the whole, all of these stories. Peter's ministry moves beyond Jerusalem. He's traveling around the countryside uh, outside of Jerusalem. And there's two stories that come really quickly here that Luke gives us. There's the story uh, of Peter healing a paralytic named Aeneas. And then right after that is a story of Peter resurrecting a woman. Uh, her name is Tabitha or Dorcas in Greek. Uh, and so these two stories just follow one after the other. We could get into the details of those, but remember these are bigger parts of a story. The bigger story that this points us to is that Peter is the authorized messenger of God. He has authority. Look, he does a miracle. He heals a paralytic, just like Jesus. Oh, look, he resurrects someone from the dead. So Luke is kind of introducing us and reminding us of this fact that Peter is the authorized messenger of God. He has authority. And then this scene closes, uh, in chapter 9, it closes with Peter at the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa, uh, which is about 80 miles south of our house in Beirut, actually. So this is the first scene. What's really clear here, though, maybe it isn't clear to us, but it's really clear to the original readers of this passage, is that both of these people and all of this ministry is amongst Jews. All of this has happened amongst Jews. So uh, that's the end of this first scene. Second scene, God gives Cornelius a vision. And so here we're introduced to this new person, 
Cornelius. Yeah, we're right in line with divine intervention. So God intervenes and gives Cornelius a vision. And this is where the story really begins to uh, become juicy, uh, if you will. There's Luke introduces Cornelius to us. Cornelius has this vision of an angel speaking to him. Uh, it results in him sending three men from his home to Caesarea in Joppa, where Peter is. But it turns out in his telling and introducing Cornelius to us, there's some important details that are there. Cornelius is a Roman soldier. He's a centurion, a leader of 100 men from the Italian cohort. It's a minor detail, but this tells us some important things about Cornelius. Cornelius belongs to a group of people who oppress people like Peter. He belongs to the Roman Empire. He's a soldier, and in fact, a higher class soldier in this, uh, in this empire. He has land, he has a nice house, he has a household full of servants and slaves that he is able to uh, direct, and uh, he uh, oppresses people like Peter. Peter and his people, Jews, even Jewish believers in Jesus, uh, have been oppressed by people like Cornelius and the Roman Empire. And in fact, there's other groups, militias and assassins and groups that are also trying to fight the Roman Empire amongst the Jews. Peter obviously isn't a part of those groups. This is some of the tension that's here. So uh, Cornelius, though, there's something different about him, isn't there? These words uh, are said about him. Luke tells us that he's a devout and God-fearing man. These are technical terms. Uh, They're specific terms that tell readers that he's interested in the Jewish religion. Uh, He fasts. He keeps some of the other practices like being generous to the poor, prays at the stated times of the day. But these technical terms also mean that he hasn't been circumcised. He hasn't been circumcised, and at this, uh, during this time, circumcision uh, functions like, almost like an ID card with his religious status. Um, uh, it proves that he either is or isn't a member, an actual member of this community, of the Jewish community. And it's really clear by him being devout and God-fearing that he doesn't fully belong to Peter's community. He doesn't fully belong. Uh, So Peter uh, would not hang out with someone like Cornelius. Uh, He wouldn't eat with him. He wouldn't drink with him. He wouldn't invite him into his house or go into uh, Cornelius's. No way. So an angelic vision intervenes here. It instructs Cornelius to go find Peter. And right at the center of this tension about going to find Peter and all of this, social disgust is is the tension that's at work here. So um, what's going to happen? Cornelius has sent these men, they're coming to Peter, what's going to happen? So, cut scene. Now we move to the next scene. The next scene picks up in uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 9, where God gives Peter a vision. So this next scene, if you picture this, almost like a movie, we're seeing now uh, from Peter's perspective, he's headed up to the roof to pray, and these men are coming to meet him, and it's around noontime, he heads up to the roof to await his meal, he's praying, and this really familiar scene happens where Peter has a vision of a sheep being let down out of heaven. He sees four-footed beasts, um, reptiles, birds, these are three basic categories of animals, in Jewish culture and Jewish life. And he hears a voice that he recognizes as the Lord's saying, eat 
kill and eat these creatures. Yummy, right? Hmm, wrong. Hungry as Peter may be, he apparently is not that hungry. Um, even for Palestinian Jews who weren't strict about other Jewish practices, keeping kosher eating habits was incredibly important. This vision would have been horrifying for someone like Peter uh, or any first century Jew um, because to eat these uh, would be to defile themselves. Uh, there, there are a couple important reasons for this, uh, why it would be so horrifying. First, I think there's a, a built-up cultural preference. This tradition was already at work and in place, and uh, it would have been just disgusting. Of course you don't eat, I don't know, snails. Of course you don't eat sheep intestines. That's gross. We just don't do that kind of thing around here. But the second reason, and this is uh, important also, for Peter and for Jews like him, this would have been impious. It would have been showing a lack of loyalty to God, a disobedience, if you will. Um, so uh, no thanks, Peter would have said. For, so for both cultural reasons and loyalty reasons to God, Peter adamantly refuses to defile himself, but not out of disobedience. Notice this vision happens three times, just like the other three times things that happen in Peter's life. And every time Peter says, no way, I wouldn't, I wouldn't eat this, no way. It's almost as though there's a test of loyalty here. God is testing Peter and Peter thinks, I'm going to get this one right. Of course I won't eat. So uh, here's the, kind of the wrap-up of these first three scenes and this divine intervention where, uh, where God is intervening. And what these scenes tell us about God's people, I think one important truth for us at all times and all places, is that the good news of reconciliation with God and Jesus is inclusive. God wants to friend everyone, even people like Cornelius. Um, why? Because God is a relational God. Um, God is a God who exists eternally in relationship. Uh, the outflow of this eternal relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit results in the creation of the world and, and humanity. And God creates humanity to be in relationship with each other and in relationship with him. And uh, so God created us to connect with him and to connect with each other. And God loves connecting with us. And my question for you, sort of the application where we stop right here for a moment, is do you know that? Do you know that God loves connecting with you? God wants to friend all people. If he were here walking amongst us today right now, I think he'd probably have a Facebook account and he'd be friending everyone. He'd have the most friends of all. Uh, God wants to friend everyone. Not only us, though. God wants to friend those people who don't belong to our group. God wants to friend people. Um, I don't know who that is for you, but maybe that looks like um, migrants and asylum seekers. Those others. Maybe that looks like, for you, um, Muslims. Maybe that looks like people from the other political party. I won't assume one or the other or uh, three. Whichever. God wants to friend all people. And God calls us to that. So uh, 
maybe the truth that God wants to friend everyone is familiar and self-evident to you. Maybe that word inclusive is a bit bothersome. Um, either way, I think this passage, uh, just this beginning section, even challenges us to continually renew our understanding of the full dimensions of the good news of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. Too often, the fullness of the good news of Jesus eludes us. Uh, but God is at work friending people, even in spite of us. He reaches to, out to Cornelius in spite of Peter and the Jewish church initially. Um, and that truth scares me. The truth that God wants to friend people uh, who are maybe not the most likely candidates for his friendship in my eyes. God wants to friend them. So let's see how this goes for Peter. So here we jump into the, the next scenes of this story, scenes four, uh, five, and six, where we have these divinely given conversations, I think is uh, what may be on the slide. Uh, these divinely given conversations. So while Peter is puzzling over this vision, the three men come uh, who were sent by Cornelius. They arrive. Luke is telling us that while Peter is still thinking about this vision, uh, that the Holy Spirit has intervened and tells Peter, don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So Peter, even though he has a vision, still needs God to intervene, needs the Holy Spirit to say, uh, this is what you need to do, go with them. And Peter responds by inviting them into his house, verse 23, to be his guests. Now this is where if we've been following the story and we understand this tension around social disgust, this tension just gets turned up to 11. Um, Pharisees and other pious Jews were concerned not only about eating impure things like we talked about already, but about hosting or even being guests of others who did. So not just at this point, not just your food is disgusting, but you're disgusting and we won't eat with you because that would be wrong. Uh, you guys to even be with you is a sin in this understanding. So um, having Gentiles overnight, no matter how exhausted they are, no matter how much, how important hospitality is, would just contradict uh, loyalty to God and obedience to God in the mindset of Jews and the Jewish church even. Eating with them was forbidden. But Peter is willing to do what the Holy Spirit tells him. So Peter violates, notice this, Peter violates some social traditions in the church in order to obey the Spirit. This is getting interesting, right? So scene five, um, Peter heads off. Luke tells us that Peter heads off the next day with these men back to Cornelius and his household. And when they arrive at Cornelius' house, um, Peter finds it filled with Cornelius' friends and relatives. And with Peter's first words to Cornelius, he tells us kind of what's going on in the story. Luke has these words on Peter's mouth that the Gentile readers would have understood, Jewish readers would have understood, and that we're to understand at this point. It's against the law for Jew to associate with a Gentile or even to visit him. Peter says, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. Unclean. Although, God, uh, although he says God has shown him not to call any man impure or unclean, Peter still mystified it, what this is all about. What, what, what am I supposed to do here? Why have you sent for me, Cornelius? I think it's almost laughable. Peter, get a clue. This is the Holy Spirit at work. Guess what you should do? But I think it's interesting, too, because 
this starts a conversation. And so Peter begins to talk and Cornelius begins to talk and there's a conversation, there's a dialogue. It's not one way. Um, Peter is reluctant, but he was willing to have a conversation here. And so from verse 30 to 33, Luke has Cornelius telling about his experience and ending with these words, fascinating words in verse 33. So now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to say to us. So, cut scene. Or maybe this is a zoom scene where it zooms in on Peter's face. Imagine him. The Lord has commanded you to tell us. What would you do in that situation? Have you ever been, I don't know, interested in sharing the gospel and feeling like you're hitting a wall or not sure what to say? Here Cornelius is saying, please, Tell us the good news that God has commanded you to tell us. Do you imagine being in that situation? I I've, I've honestly have never had that experience. I've never had that happen to me uh, in thinking about sharing the gospel. Faced with this situation, what does Peter do? Zooms in, Peter proclaims the good news. Of course he should, right? Of course he should do that. So he proclaims the good news. He starts with an explanation of his own conversion tells about the ministry of Jesus and the group of Gentiles, this whole group of Gentiles about the free nature of the good news uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, he tells that. And so some interpreters, when you read this and you read commentaries around this, some interpreters want to focus here and do a comparison between this sermon and other sermons of Peter's and try to figure out maybe differences that are going on here. I think that misses the bigger picture, that Peter proclaims the good news here. Uh, and that this proclamation is preceded by a conversation. So uh, really quickly here, God has intervened and given these divine conversations and allowed this to happen. Um, and it, again in this section, so this is the end of the, our second section, we encounter some important truths about who God is and what God does. God does not show favoritism, so neither should God's people. God's initiative to friend all kinds of people uh, connects uh, these two together. God connects people with each other when he connects them with himself. Notice this. And God uses other people to do that. So in reconciling Cornelius to himself, God chooses to do this with Peter. Not in spite of Peter, but brings Peter along in a conversation and in a reconciliation of Cornelius and the kind of people that Cornelius represents with Peter and the kind of people that Peter represents. So when God's people actually engage in conversations with others, even with those who perhaps disgust them, God's people often find that God has already been at work friending them. Um, what are we to do? I think witness shouldn't start with presentation. It starts with just conversation, having a conversation. Um, I remember when I first met a Muslim person the first time, my Cornelius was a group of Syrian men uh, living outside of New York City in a suburb of, uh, of New Jersey that's just outside of New York City, Clifton, New Jersey. I had gone to live in Clifton for a summer. I was living in the basement of a church for an internship during my time in seminary. And the whole purpose of this internship was to do evangelism amongst Muslims in this uh, suburb. And so we went out to just meet Muslims in the parks and in this kind of suburb area. And so I would go to the park and play football, or as we call it here in the U.S., soccer. 
I'd play soccer with uh, people, whoever I found, and greet them and would be introduced to them and we'd have time together. And So uh, I was playing and met this group of men and some of my friends came along and they invited us back to their house to eat kusa, which is stuffed, um, stuffed zucchini. It's a great dish. You should try it out sometime. But uh, they invited us in and so we began to just talk and have conversations and it eventually led to us sharing the gospel and talking about the good news of Jesus and they didn't believe, they didn't uh, profess faith in Christ, but it, we had conversations around that. And it all happened just through um, conversation, through these, this friendship. I think sometimes we put too much pressure on ourselves to have kind of a program of proclamation and what we're supposed to say. I think God prepares those conversations for us, and the conversation is actually really important. It's a part of the good news. So, Back to our story. This is kind of wrapping up. This is the, the climax of this story uh, in scene uh, seven, which is the end of chapter 10 and then on into chapter 11. In this final uh, two scenes, Luke confirms to his readers uh, the big idea and the main point of this whole episode. So here's Peter. He's telling about the forgiveness uh, that, only, that can only be found in faith in Jesus and what happens. Suddenly, these Gentiles begin speaking in tongues. Do you remember the passage we read at the beginning of the service today, Acts 2, where the tongues of flames and the, the fire come down from heaven and land on this group at Pentecost? And if you notice in that reading, they were all Jews. Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 was all Jews. And here we have Luke echoing Acts 2, but it's amongst Gentiles. The Holy Spirit comes down on them, uh, just like in Acts 2. And so the Holy Spirit is confirming the Holy Spirit's presence on Gentiles also. Um, the Jewish believers who are with Peter, the text says, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. They were astonished. You could, you could even underline that in your Bibles. Even on the Gentiles? Yes even on the Gentiles. So what Luke's readers see is a most astonishing conversion. Yeah, the Gentiles. But what's even more astonishing is this beginning of a, of a conversion amongst Peter and the Jewish believers who are with him. That the gospel is even for Gentiles. And so this is what we begin to see, them realizing this, that the gospel is for them, that they can become believers and followers in Jesus of Jesus without becoming Jews. These Gentiles have become followers. The Holy Spirit has come upon them and they haven't been circumcised. <gasps> Shock. Oh my goodness. How is this possible? Well, it's possible because it's happening and the Holy Spirit is doing this. Just as they are, these Gentiles are becoming followers of Christ. They're becoming indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter asks this question, can anyone withhold the water for baptism, uh, the water for baptizing these people who have who has received the Holy Spirit just as we have? The assumed answer to this question is, of course, no. So at Peter's urging, the Jewish believers baptized Cornelius and his entire household in the name of Jesus Christ. These words are spoken over them. Uh, the first wonder here is that they're baptized without being circumcised. But then the second wonder that happens in this passage, it's right there at the end, is that the Gentiles request Peter 
and his Jewish friends stay with them for a couple of days. They stay with them and eat with them in their house and live with them in their house. They remain their guests. As familiar as this story is to me, and maybe to you if you've heard it before, the shock of this new thing um, is, is maybe it doesn't really register. Make no mistake, this is Luke's big point. The Gentiles have been included in the people of God as Gentiles. This is astonishing. And so in scene eight, this is sort of the climax, and then scene eight is what we call, I think it's a French term, denouement. It's the resolution of everything. And the resolution is the group, somehow this news precedes them, gossip, precedes them as they return back to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church has already heard about this. Um, They've already heard about what Peter did and what has happened with Cornelius, and uh, they're shocked. the, um, the early church father, John Chrysostom, points out there's a significant question here in this last passage, this last scene in chapter 11, uh, verse 1 through 18. These people in the church of Jerusalem, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, ask, not, why did you preach to them, Peter? They ask, why did you eat with them, Peter? Because to eat with them was to say, okay, now we're supposed to be equal. Now we're supposed to share food and table fellowship is established. Relationship is reconciled. How could you eat with them? You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. How could you do this? Um, Peter's answer is really simple. He retraces the story, but all throughout he's saying God did this. God initiated this. It was through the divine authorization of the Holy Spirit that the Gentiles have been included as Gentiles. Harold Dollar is a New Testament scholar. He's a missiologist, and he comments here. He says, uh, Luke's conclusion is unmistakable. God has included Gentiles as Gentiles, and the church must not resist. And I think that this point really challenges us uh, today God reconciles people to himself and does so by confronting the favoritism in God's people, the social disgust in God's people that prevents our dialogue with others, whoever that is. And so the question for us is, will we be willing to be changed for the sake of welcoming new people and new generations into the church? I want to leave you with some really challenging application questions, really. Uh, there's two main areas. The first is what strangers might the Holy Spirit be calling us to welcome? Maybe they are those who look different than us or speak different than us. Maybe they have a different political conviction than us. Our diff- maybe different status under U.S. citizenship law. Do we welcome only those who already look like us who already talk like us and who are like us and are willing to become like us? Or do we welcome those who are other? That's the first area. The second is, are we willing to be changed for the sake of welcoming new people and new generations? Are we willing to loosen the grip on long-standing, dearly held traditions, political ideologies, cultural preferences, that keep us from really welcoming people to the table and being hospitable to others. 
Those are the questions I want to leave with you. If you're not a friend of God, remember that God wants to befriend you as he did Cornelius, as you are. He wants to share his heart with you. If you are a friend of God, you will find Cornelius's in your life. Remember that God precedes you in mission. He does. He's already reaching out into the world and preparing conversations and preparing hearts. God wants you to feel the joy, just like Peter did, of sharing the good news. It's, it's not just good news. It's the greatest news that there is. We have an incredible story to share of forgiveness, of reconciliation with God and reconciliation amongst humans, amongst men and women. And this is the story that we have to share. We have an amazing story to share. So what about us? Have we tasted how good God is with others? For many of us, when we do, I think God will begin to turn our yuck into a yummy. So God wants us to befriend to befriend Cornelius's. He delights in them becoming his people too. And my prayer for you is that you would begin to experience and, and experience the joy of being in Peter's position and of experiencing this conversion into relationship with others who were others and are now a part of the people of God, the body of Christ. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks because you reconcile people to yourself. We're challenged and humbled because you confront favoritism and social disgust in us. We give you thanks because you do so. You continually challenge us and renew us, even for those of us who have been in the church for years and years or those of us who are new to the church. You confront and challenge our traditions and bring them in con into conformity with you. We give you thanks for friending us. And we ask that you would work in our hearts to help us friend others, to seek them out, and for others to no longer be others, but to be friends, to be a part of the people of God as they are. Transform us, transform our hearts through the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ. Amen.